0: Folks, welcome back to the Port Pearls Almanac. This is your host Andy, and today we're talking with the team at GC Resolve about the impending farm bill. While the farm bill is often seen as a tool that focuses around mostly commodity crops, in recent years it has drawn attention as a tool to increase diversity and equity in farming. We talk extensively about GC Resolve's work around incorporating more sustainable agriculture support in the farm bill and what pragmatic solutions are possible. For some of our longer-term listeners, some of this conversation might seem to fall outside of the scope and the goals of this podcast as a whole. That said, our interests have never been to exist within a bubble, and finding common ground for collective interests is fundamental in trying to build a better and more just world. This also means understanding the perspective of folks who come to different conclusions on how to address the issue of soil degradation and staving off climate collapse. In short, it's complicated. That said, I think this is a really interesting conversation and highlights that there's much more common ground than separate, and we should be working to build deeper roots in that space. We hope you all enjoy this conversation and keep this in mind as you listen to this dialogue. Graham, Laura, thanks so much for coming on. Could you introduce yourself? I'll start with Laura.
1: Okay. Hi, my name is Laura Thomas and I live in Omaha, Nebraska, and I work for GC Resolve as a communications and partnerships manager. And I help serve as a network coordinator for Regenerate Nebraska. And also I work a little bit with the renewable energy side with GC Revolt. Glad to be here.
2: Hey everyone, my name's Graham Christensen. I'm a fifth generation family farmer from Northeast Nebraska. We initially started farming in Nebraska the year that Nebraska went from a territory to a state, which was 1867. I farm with my brother currently now, and I also have a couple other businesses that are focused on the environment. GC Resolve, which Laura had mentioned, is a communications and consulting company that is working hard to normalize uh, the narrative around environmental issues and, and match Those concerns and those solutions better with our culture so that we don't have partisanship or divisiveness, which is taking folks away from, I think, the overall good for all of us. Within those efforts, Regenerate Nebraska is a network that has formed so GC Resolve will serve as some of the connective tissue of this network uh, that's approaching about 200 different farms, tribes, communities, organizations, or businesses supporting a all-out change towards regenerative agriculture in Nebraska. And GC Revolt is the other company and that's focused more on uh, energy development, alternative energy development. I'm glad to be here.
0: Thanks. So we connected through Dr. Annabelle Ford when I happened to be discussing Mayan farmers down in Belize, and you guys happened to be there. So before we get going on the front bill, could you talk a little bit about what you guys were doing down there?
1: Okay, I will jump in. We have been in a really beautiful process with the local Maya community here in South Omaha, they were displaced from Guatemala and Maya territory starting in the late 80s and continue to this day. They're still coming and relocating here. Many are working in the meatpacking plants across the state of Nebraska, and we've been embarking through the pandemic they are the Comunidad Maya Pishani. Shim is a Regenerate Nebraska Network partner. And the executive director reached out to Graham, really wanting to navigate the uncertainties of the pandemic and really hone in on food sovereignty for their people. And that developed into connecting them with the different ideas around regenerative agriculture and honoring indigenous wisdom, both here in the U.S. and, of course, down in Maya territory and globally. And we started a feasibility study to really start fleshing out this beautiful vision they have for a Maya regeneration project, which is a farm. And I'll let Graham go into that But after several months of of helping be the connector to have them see all the different regenerative agriculture styles here in the Midwest to see what they really wanted to do, they really had a liking to the agroforestry model, which really brought it all back to their Maya territory and the roots of the Milpa farming cycle, the forest farming cycle. And that's how we connected Luis connected us to Dr. Ford and Narciso and many of the other forest gardeners. And that's how we met you in Belize. And I'll let Graham fill in any gaps.
2: Luis had seen that there was an archaeologist that was talking about a little bit different take on the story of the Maya farmers and and Milpa. And Dr. Ford was showing us while we were down there and and has been um, articulating that The Maya people, based on what she's seen around Maya communities, had a much more efficient and distributed food system that actually fed more people per region than any other civilization, including modern day civilization or including the Roman civilization and the evidence is coming up has to do something with uh, just super biodiverse food products in the jungle that are still growing up in very th- kind of thick and around these maya communities you can still see where they had their gardens and and um, where they planted these certain trees for nutrition and also for different kinds of uh, healing properties so that's a little bit different than kind of the narrative where my agriculture was such a huge part of the collapse. My agriculture may have been impacted by several factors, that cut off some of the trade channels around the Maya territory. However, they still had a lot of security in these communities. And it's just as things started to get bad with the Spanish kind of intrusion um, coming into the area and disease started to take its toll. And there's also evidence of droughts that were going on. And as the Maya leadership grew more corrupt, you saw the Maya farmers start to head further into the jungle, um, away from the drama, and they had the skills to be able to continue to survive. And so the people that we saw down in Belize, these Maya forest farmers, um, Laura mentioned Narciso, and there was a handful of others. They're descendants that are carrying on that old tradition on these small holder areas in which they have hundreds of species that grow that not only nourish their family and some of their friends, but go into the area marketplaces. Of course, they're under the same threats that we are um, here in the United States. But in summary, Luis Marcos and the and, uh, members of Pishana Hashim, they wanted to learn more about this so that even though we're in a different ecosystem in Nebraska, as they look to reclaiming their agrarian roots and replanting their life and their roots uh, more permanently in Nebraska, while we grow slightly different things here... Um, and have different growing seasons. Those principles are, are extremely valuable. And so they wanted to make sure that those were added into the feasibility planning that we do as, as we look at the scenario um, where we seek to fundraise and purchase 310 acres in which we would start to show that there are different models in agriculture that immigrant communities can be a part of that aren't quite as predatory.
0: Now, when I think of what you're talking about, this is something I think is really common in the world of like small farming where it's like folks will want to farm 5, 10, 100, sometimes up to like four or 500 acres for our community. And then when we start talking about like the scope of things like what we are here to talk about, the farm bill. It feels very often like that Farm Bill isn't designed for those types of farmers, that the Farm Bill is designed around like commodity crops, which in a sense it is, but also it has very serious repercussions for everyone along the entire scope of anyone that would define themselves as like a farmer. So that's something I know we had talked about quickly before, but I I wanted to spend some time and chat with you today about what. Does the Farm Bill mean coming up in 2023? Why is it so important this year? And how does it impact people outside of that commodity market farmer?
2: Title 11 of the Farm Bill, there's 12 titles, and Title 11 is the crop insurance title. And the crop insurance title is not designed in a way that helps give federal crop insurance to these kind of farmers you mentioned. Also, if I were to were to do certain regenerative practices on our farm, which we are sampling around and trying to scale up on our farm. These certain certain practices that we're trying to apply can eliminate our ability to participate in the crop insurance program. So right there is just one example of how the farm bill has been written and tilted towards commodity farmers and supporting more export markets than these local regional markets which we need to establish a strong sense of food security in our respective areas. Now, with everything going on in the world today, you would think that food security, us being able to be able to produce food in our regions or even in our communities that can provide the ample nutrition for life to exist would be of high priority. But the fact is, in these agricultural powerhouse states like Nebraska, 90% of our product, our food, is being imported, even though we have all these acres of breadbasket productive land. We have a problem here and is setting us up for serious issues. And so we are looking at the 2023 Farm Bill as a reform opportunity. Um, the Farm Bill hasn't always been noted as the top thing that people around the country unite around and get involved in. And it's often very quietly passed and some of the status quo things continue to be supported. And while we're not anti-export, we just want to make sure that we're getting 10 to 20% of that marketplace back. So if things do get bad, there are skills and products in place that can continue to keep our community at these community levels flourishing, healthy, and able to continue to move forward on the day-to-day and so that we can best perform in whatever circumstances um, we're called for. And so there are pieces that we're focusing and honing down on that we think can help a greater transition towards regenerative agriculture and also emphasize a little bit more regional support. Um, And of course, the gorilla in the room is to try to figure out is how the baby boomer generation transitions all of this land, because the land, like the wealth, is concentrated severely in this country too, how we can have young, diverse farmers have pathways onto the land and use their energy and independent spirit and entrepreneurship creativity to be able to bring these new opportunities that support regenerative agriculture to fruition. We don't think under the current status quo that there is an opportunity for young people to have a a chance to be on the land again. And it's really sad because I feel like my generation is one of the last that's having a little bit of that opportunity, but it's mostly through being handed down. Young people can't afford the way we are structured currently unless you're, you know, extremely blessed to be able to pick up good fertile rural land that's $12,500 an acre and fit into this big commodity structured system. We should be looking at using the farm bill as an avenue to invest in the next generation of regenerative farmers, as well as helping those that exist transition towards uh, regenerative agriculture, rather than seeing the trends that we're seeing as investor ownership removed from the area that don't care for the land properly It won't help us be able to get some of the benefits the regenerative agriculture has to offer, like lowering emissions, increasing nutrition, and cleansing the water. Um, And then there's also, we're seeing more foreign multinational influence start to come into the infrastructure in that marketplace as well. Um, We just really think that now is the time for the young generation to um stake a claim in in the land and how it transitions and so the 2023 farm bill serves as a huge opportunity to aid that great transition.
0: Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to have this conversation now. It feels like there was an opportunity with when the green new deal was like a big like rallying cry and it didn't really go anywhere and I think the the reason for that like it it fundamentally seemed inaccessible whereas i think things like like it, it's hard to imagine a world where you know for example to pick on the green new deal everyone's driving around in electric cars like n- not everyone can afford a tesla that's not going to change anytime soon cars that exist today that are gas are going to continue to exist for a long time regardless of whether or not you can buy a brand new one at the you know dealership whereas i think people understand what food is and to say why are we not funding these foods instead of the ubiquitous corn product that exists in everything. I think that's something that regardless of political affiliation, it seems really accessible and fundamentally sound, you could say. When we talk about the farm bill, what is it in particular where you see the most opportunity to make good improvement or an accessible improvement that People can rally around is understandable in uh, like common sense terms and also has like an actual opportunity to support what you're trying to do.
1: Yeah, I would just comment on and kind of back to the previous question. We're trying to allow young, diverse, farmers on a smaller land benefit from the farm bill. And I was just on a call, I do a lot of listening to farmers across the country. And this common theme, which I think resonates with a lot of people as we hear, you know, the quote, the system isn't broken, it was it was built this way. And so as we're navigating, you know, the 2023 farm bill, while we see this as a transformative farm bill. I believe it as well. We have to really look at both the macro lens of this, but also the micro and the hyper local concerns and listening. And there was a wonderful farmer on the call today that I was listening to. And they said, what would you like to see? And just the idea that the, the farm bill and like with crop insurance and a lot of it was written for large commodity farming. And so she was just detailing how difficult it is that they have to convert. You know, they have a very small plot of land and they have to convert from acres, you know, commodity crop acres. So as they're filling out these applications, they have to convert it, you know, based on the algorithm set from the commodity structure. And so she was just asking, could you make it? So it could be flexible for me to add in my numbers that work for us. So just, you know, as we're looking at this from these larger themes, really looking at the actual on the ground changes that could really uplift and open up opportunity and access to diverse farmers.
0: And I think the fact that it is predicated towards commodity crops, corn, wheat, soy, isn't surprising giving like this long arduous history that the United States has had with those commodity crops, especially around like the world wars and things like that. When this comes out, we'll have actually just released an episode about the history of corn and kind of that, how did we get here, which I think people don't really understand. And it's okay to not understand because it's really complicated. There were some bad players, but like mostly it was like good intentions that all kind of into this like weird system that was like the worst case scenario for all of these good intentions. I think that's really important because you can't move forward without really soberly looking at where we stand today and saying, okay, we have to understand how we got here, why we got here, how much of this is good and bad and then how do we transition? And that's what you guys are trying to do right now with your advocacy for the changes in the farm bill, making it more accessible to small farmers, making land more accessible to younger generations. Obviously, one of the key reasons why farming has this accumulative power is because of the tax structures around land. And basically, a lot of farmers they might not make a lot of money on paper, but it's that accumulative value that's being non-taxed in the value of the farmland itself. That obviously, as it accumulates, that means that land is inherently becoming more inaccessible to other people because you've got this deferred tax structure. So what are some of your thoughts about We've talked about making things more accessible. Is there something in particular that you think needs to be done to make land more accessible?
2: Yes. Um, I'm glad you asked that because that's where I wanted to um, head with this conversation. There are some pieces that we think can be added in and bolstered. There's traditionally been conservation reserve programs, which is set aside land into grasslands pretty much it's a generalization, but that's pretty close. Conservation Stewardship Program, which starts to support farmers as they think about soil health, but there's restrictions there that are making it tougher for farmers to make business sense out of this rather than just kind of take the government payment and apply some of these practices. It needs to make business sense so that they can get out of the government program after they've had a chance to learn. So we're advocating for something that's larger. And in the reform mindset, And this would be outside of CRP and CSP, the Conservation Reserve Program, the Conservation Stewardship Program, and RTP, which is a regenerative transition program. And we'd like to see a marker bill come out that would complement those two programs and help existing farmers be able to transition. Now, I'm just going to leave that generally right now because there's other pieces that are really important that would have to go with this. And this piece is gaining a lot of attention across the countries. We talk in various circles, and that is taking the Natural Resources Conservation Service technicians, NRCS is the conservation um, focus area of the United States Department of Agriculture, and making sure that we're taking their education and understanding of regenerative agriculture principles that start with the healing of that soil and being able to make sure that they understand in these different respective ecologies um, that are all over this country, in their respective ecology, understanding what practices and principles can be applied, that they can help educate the farmer as we shoot for this big transition. So that's a part of the technical assistance that kind of needs a facelift. It needs to be updated. A lot of the technicians, they know a little bit about soil health. That's a good start, but actually understanding the practices that can further enhance that with respect to these regions and various cultures that are within them has to be updated. We're not quite to the place right now where that transition could be made um, because we don't quite have the educational foundation that is in our own government right now to be able to do that. The other caveat of that is that we would like to see additional support be able to go to communities or organizations that represent communities that are more culturally appropriate to translate how this transition takes place for communities in inner cities, tribal communities, as well as in rural areas. So we want to see on ground communities also being supported to further assist those technicians and be able to make the case and speak in a culturally appropriate way, because once again, you know, I've been talking in RTP about existing farmers, but the bigger picture is all this land's going to free up, and we need to be able to have that in place also to groom the next generation of farmers. And that comes with the third key piece that is a little bit more reform minded. We don't feel the government should own land, but we do think that there should be a land bank within the government that allows existing landowners that will be retiring from the land to be able to have some kind of a small retirement stipend that would serve as an incentive to transition the land into this holding area so that a young person that had passion and wanted to be, go back to the land and be part of the regenerative agriculture solution could be able to put in an application and access the land in which they would have a long-term perpetual easement should they meet some criteria, including some form of business management training, absolutely working with these technicians again that will have been caught up on some of these transitional regenerative practices so that they can be able to have assistance to learn about soil health and regenerative agricultural practices appropriate to their specific region. And of course, having tenure on the land for yet a still undetermined amount of years um, in which that land then shifted over to them in a perpetual easement um, that gave them the security of not having to feel like they would be kicked off of the land at any point. So we want to see some help and assistance in something that looks conceptually like that that starts to shift the land into the next generation and protect it from being owned by foreign multinationals or large investors who are removed from the land. We owe it to the next generation. And so those are kind of our priorities. It's the existing farmers transition, it's the new farmers transitioning onto all this land. And it is the technical assistance, both in governmental and community-based forms that are culturally appropriate that help the transition takes place and starts to add a lot of beauty and color and energy back into rural areas. And of course, then when you start doing that, we're starting able to return more nutrition to larger populations centers in in urban areas.
0: So what you're saying is you don't want Bill Gates to buy your farm.
2: No, we have about folks, you know, with (laughs) kind of an agenda, you know, and using the extra GM um, type scenario to breed protein that is still coated in some of the same kind of chemicals that are causing large you know, impacts in our public's health. We don't think that only a few people should own the land. Yep. In order to care for the land regeneratively, we have to have more people on the land to do the right kind of job that it will take in order for us to balance these rising emissions scenario and, and cleanse the water that has been contaminated by the industry.
1: I would say a wonderful insight that Dr. Annabelle Ford gave us while we were, you know, down in Belize and and after we stay in constant communication is just the idea of reframing agriculture from the colonized mindset model that was really about horizontal, you know, really tearing down all of it. And it was looking at a horizontal, you know, model. And that's where we get into these more biodiverse systems that are looking four-dimensional. So with my family farm that's 160 acres and people don't think that it's a viable farmland anymore, in the commodity structure. The idea, if you look at it from a regenerative reframing, and the idea that 160 acres has so much opportunity, both to restore the biodiversity and the water that is contaminated, but also to have like these stacked enterprises and cooperative collaborative partnerships. And so that reframing and and learning what are our targets that we're looking at? Because I think this gets back to, we have to really keep our eye on that the system was built, our economics are built on plantation economics and colonizer economics. And so as we judge our success, we have to make sure we're restructuring the terms of that agreement of success. And I think the farm bill can help in a bigger way, scale that to have new markers and targets for success. And that it does take a high, middle, low approach at this to make it move forward.
0: Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. What Graham had explained, like this multifaceted approach to transition, it kind of sounds like a really thorough, integrated version of like the extension schools that exist today. And I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of them. And I know, fortunately, you guys are actually in a pretty good location for some pretty good extension schools comparatively. Like I know around here, Cornell is probably the best extension school that does a lot of work on silvopasture and uh, agroforestry as a, in general. But in reality, and this is something you also are probably familiar with, is that a lot of the extension schools, the knowledge that they present is often designed and geared towards, again, more of the commodities, more of the traditional fertilizer infrastructure. And in many cases, tends to err on the side of conservation of knowledge in the sense that they're much more often going to say something as dangerous before tacitly acknowledging that it might be good. And that's something you see especially with like tree fodder is something that not universally but almost universally will be treated as like something that you can't feed your, your livestock. Whereas that is a fundamental part of how many indigenous farmers, you know, were able to keep their livestock alive. So like we know fundamentally, it's not true, but the infrastructure that exists today isn't designed and is slow to make that transition to thinking outside of that traditional paradigm. And what you're presenting or what you're proposing is really suggesting that we basically need to take that extension model and make it much more much more creative, much more willing to to adjust with new information and to be fully integrated as part of a community versus kind of this thing that exists in regions but isn't meaningfully connected to the people of the community, which is the at least my own personal experience as uh, somebody that has worked with them in the past.
2: Mm-hmm. I would say that you're really on to something. We have some amazing young people in, you know, out of the University of Nebraska Lincoln Extension that are really trying to help turn the curve. But because of a lot of the funding sources um, through these large land grant institutions, they're being hamstrung a little bit from being able to truly give the guidance that's needed for a great transition to be able to happen. This is, let's be clear here. We need a great transition into more biodiverse systems and equality, including both in diversity, but on the socioeconomic side has to be restored in the system. The money's there is being hoarded by monopolies and those are influencing extension. So we need to be able to think, you know, a little bit broader, how we're able to restore some of this kind of community interaction that helps with the great transition. And, and I think extension has a has a role here, but I think they've really been put into a corner where they haven't been, they're not well positioned at this time. Um, and so that's something that definitely is going to need to be addressed on a larger scale. And we think um, some of these things do address that. Another thing that is really worth talking about at this time. Is that as the bigger commodity game has become, you know, kind of the way and farmers have garnered support from the farm bill to kind of stay into the system? A lot of farms still don't have very high cash reserves because most of their money is tied up in all these assets, the land and this expensive equipment. Meaning that if a farmer truly wanted to transition into something more biodiverse, Where's the marketplace and how could they afford to add a whole new lineup of equipment that might help them process hazelnuts or might help them process small grains or, you know, legumes, stuff that they haven't traditionally grown in recent times. There's something to be learned in this because as we depleted young people away from farming and there's less and less farming, we don't have a lot of political power as farmers do anymore. But the power lies in the urban communities um, as we've moved towards urbanization over the last hundred years in this country. And so having a marketplace that is being demanded by people in highly populated urban areas is extremely vital at this time. And a farm bill can help connect the dots to that by allowing more investment in on-farm infrastructure so that we're getting tooled up to be able to meet what is a growing demand in these urban areas that I imagine as we have more of these conversations is gonna continue to grow. When the consumer is more loudly demanding these things and the Farm Bill is supporting us, to add infrastructure on these farms for these new farmers that are young and coming onto land or existing farmers that are shifting out into more biodiverse operations. We really do have to have some on-farm processing infrastructure to get, get a more diverse set of pro- clean products that also honor the health of the soil and drop emissions out to more people. And um, we are also uh, want to call out to folks um, in the urban areas or anywhere that have the technological ability and skills set to be able to, to work with us farmers to restore the transparency in the marketplace. Because I feel like in New York City, you should be able to scan something when you go to the market and it should say, oh, Christensen in Nebraska. Christensen is powered by solar and plugs EVs into his farm operation. And he's sequestered and stored through adding these new layers of biodiversity this much greenhouse gases. We've seen water improvements on his land. He is has six different things you know growing you know this season. Um, and here's like a picture of them, their family and their dogs and the animals of course on the farm as well, so that there's a transparency that can once again put the power back into the consumer so that they can demand what goes into their body, gives them the best ability to think at the highest levels and physically perform, as well, simultaneously, again, increasing the longevity of our lives through better nutrition. This can happen. We now have the technology to be able to do this. And the farm bill can also serve as a conduit from getting product from point A to point B as the consumer starts to become more well-informed in the space and also starts to yield a louder voice. So,
0: uh, this brings up, I think, two points for me that I want to ask about. The first is more of a comment, I think, than a question. But like when we talk about this idea of like larger scale, let's say 200 acres, 300 acres, smaller than like what one person will meaningfully be able to manage, especially when we start talking about polycrops, where you're, it's like, well you know, you need different pieces of equipment for each of these specialized products. So say you've got a hazelnut silvo pasture and you're also doing pigs that are going underneath it, and you're doing ducks and whatever it might be. The thing that kind of underlines why you're doing all those things is the fact that you own that piece of land. And that seems fundamentally against that infrastructure, because in many ways, it would make much more sense if you've got a couple hundred acres, that you have someone who has a pig or pork business, and you've got somebody who has a hazelnut business, and they're managing, even on multiple plots of land or a singular plot of land, that business that they're good at, but they're overlapping on that singular piece of land, but not necessarily the business component. And it gets really messy because of the fact that at the end of the day, there's one person who owns that land and has that extractive value. And I I don't know if there's really an answer for that that challenge under capitalism, at least. Well, my real question, I guess, is when it comes to regenerative ag, and this is something we're starting to see today, I've noticed it probably in the last year, is that it's starting to get that greenwash effect that organic food got a decade ago. And I'm wondering, how do you deal with that? And I don't know if that's something that would be that you think can be tackled in something like a farm bill, or If that's just like a, we deal with that when we deal with it. And right now, the bigger issue is like making this basically accessible. Because I think about like free range and it's like, oh, your chickens are free range. Well, that's not what you think it means. And what is going to happen to regenerative ag once big producers start investing in it and wanting to profitize from it and the regenerative process itself is the thing that keeps them from making more money. So how how much can they scale it back while still quantifying it, qualifying it as regenerative? Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's a big loaded question. Yeah,
2: and I, have, I have a lot to add to those, but um, Lord, did you want to start off?
1: No, I, I mean, I just have a few comments as I'm listening in. Um, and I do think a lot of it is there's going to be complexities in all of this where um, we were just at a wonderful regenerative poultry convergence where we understand that economics, basic economics is going to be a factor in all of this. But we can also reframe and add wealth management. That's more looking at ecosystem management, as well as those triggers, those levels of managing. You know, showing your success, and so that that leads into more of that collaborative, cooperative model, where um, that is we're in conversations where it is looking looking into not just having one landowner. You know, having a shared system of governance. So that is happening in really exciting to look into and just I would say the other piece and then I'll let Graham come in is like we hear a lot that uh, when you're talking about local food systems that you're then you're perceived as being anti-trade or anti-commodity or you know we're living in a binary culture right now where there's only two options and that's a lie and so the idea of, of having space for these complex Questions that are looking at um, regenerative in the context of economics. There is, we are seeing greenwashing because that is kind of a principle. There, it's a marketing tool. However, when you really get into ecosystems management and wealth management, where you're holistically looking at the individual and the system, that builds a much deeper definition of regenerative principles that you can really track and maintain that high integrity. So we're just looking at layers of complexities that are all working right now. But I'd say the final thing from your last comment that Graham was just talking about is consumers are wanting this. Like it's, it's clear from all the conversations we've been in that people are wanting these products. You have producers here that are wanting to do this type of agriculture and you're having the USDA, you know, say they want to do this. So we are at a moment of opportunity and like the complexity is figuring out that those intricate Pieces to make it work.
2: Yeah, I appreciate all that, Laura. To paint a picture of the future of the farm, I'm just going to use our farm as a hypothetical. So, we started adding multi species cover cropping, and we're trying to figure out how to produce in between a corn and a, a non GMO corn and soybean rotation, a super diverse feeding source that we can start running animals through and get the fertilizer benefits so we no longer have to purchase synthetics. That's where we're at. But the other goals of the future then become okay, who's going to run the cows that would be the fertilizer machines that we need to be able to make this vision work? That's my brother's brother-in-law. That's a young man who really wants to farm, but has no other inroad, and would be starting to manage this portion of the, of our farm. And the income, we just need to be able to pay taxes on the farm and make sure that his time is taken care of, because we'll get all the benefits of the fertilizer. We'll have upgraded by doing that, and so those are the economics we're looking at there. But then we planted a hundred. Uh, plant micro orchard of hazelnuts because we see how the hazelnut in our region can be part of us adding agroforestry, which will further drop carbon, which will stop erosion and which will start getting more roots in the ground to cleanse water and further break up that corn and soy rotation right in the middle of the, you know, right in the middle of something that you could see corn as far as you looked. I don't have time to be able to fit that in. I need someone else that's young and energetic and creative to come in and manage that system, and so it would be the same scenario as long as like we're able to pay the taxes. And bringing this person on, all of that funding that's created, essentially, new funds would essentially go for a position like this. And we would love to have a a greenhouse that allowed us to, you know, grow uh, different various cannabis products or products in the wintertime so that we can have something growing, you know, seasonal um, or for medicinal benefits as well. And that's going to take another person. So we've just added three people um, in full-time managerial positions onto this farm that was just my brother and myself. And most of this is taking place on 160 acres, even though we do have other land. If you were to extend the farm vision, that would unite 310 acres with the Maya community um, who would be deploying their own vision on the farm. And I would be able to be able to help help integrate them, um, not only with kind of how the soil and the ecology works here, but also with the community. We would be able to cooperate with equipment, with people, get that care for the land that we're really trying to seek on our farm. And that is so entrenched in the Maya community and has been restored through the feasibility process we've gone through. And so we think that if we can take the land debt out and show that this works, Through a fundraising campaign, we can further make the point to political leaders that immigrant communities that are coming into the United States, uh, not just a migrant worker in a supply chain for $13 to $15 per hour under the harshest conditions, that they actually, with these agrarian skills in many of the areas that our new guests and friends are coming from, they hold the key to us being able to really properly care for the land and that multi-generational farmers like myself can enable this and then we can easier make the case on a larger scale so that we can be able to further develop farm policy that enables this kind of a structure and we will be chipping away at the socio-economic degradation that has happened in our communities due to the concentration of wealth as monopolies have gained more power and have become less regulated by a proper role of government. The vision is there. We know that this can work. We know we have some barriers and we know we're chipping away one year at a time, but we are striving for those things. And we think the more examples we have of this across the country and of course in Nebraska, we're going to be able to leverage that into really having people see that vision and that vision hit home so that we're creating more support networks for it. The feed the world mentality is blown it's not working if you look across a swath of land and see only one thing as far as you can see you're not taking advantage of the full advantage of the land not only are you probably degrading the soil and leading to all these other issues but you're not growing that you know that hazelnut in between those and you're not growing the pecan tree which is much bigger you know that's at a higher landscape and you're not running animals through that system on the land, just as the bison had once to, you know, done in, in a times where we had a much more balanced ecosystem. So we can actually produce way more and we can stack enterprises on the land existing if we have a little support to transition. Now the regenerative greenwashing is an issue, but this is exactly what the industry wants they want us to fight over what regenerative agriculture means. And if we can come around to a few basic principles about how this starts with the care of the soil, which enables all of these other things to be able to take place, we can be able to go a long way. If we can also respect the indigenous wisdom that is still out here, that has stories and sacred seeds saved and information on nutrition, and management in areas all across the United States and deploy that sacred wisdom into the thought process of how this could look, then we cannot be penetrated. The industry cannot separate us fighting over what regenerative ag is or isn't. The indigenous wisdom as the foundation is vital to us being able to make that work. And if we simply honor that, if we bring that along as we are developing this system, it's really, really tough to be able to challenge that. And so that needs to happen, but we cannot be getting into fights about what the definition of regenerative ag is. We cannot let folks greenwash this topic. We have to have real results at this time, enough of screwing around and wasting time. Um, we have to get this right. And if we if we ground ourselves in that kind of thought process, then we will have a strong bond that allows us to be able to work together so that we can do this the right way and straighten this mess out. Now, these industry players who could or might not be behind this, some of them will have a role and some of them won't. And we have to kind of look at this as an individual basis because the fact of the matter is we are on a clock. We have a limited time. We've expedited the problems. And so we are here in life right now to be able to fix this problem. Some of them will fit into this solution role, and we need to approach them directly at this time. And we need to bring these ideas. As we are doing this, we see that some have not thought about this. But when we talk about their kids and their role in what's going on, sometimes a seed's planted and it hits home, and we see changes happening. However, we do know some of these powerful monopolies, uh, particularly these multinationals that represent the meatpacking industry, some of them are not going to be able to make the transition. They will try to greenwash this and not be honest, but we have seen this for 100 years now we know what it looks like and we don't have to accept that as the norm we can work with those who are willing to work with us to turn the corner and we can ensure that this is grounded in that indigenous aspect and we can and we will get it right this time
0: for folks that are listening and think they are 100% down with what you're talking about could you summarize in like a couple sentences what you would want people to do like what's their what's your call to action for folks that are listening and saying yeah but what can I do?
1: I'll
2: let you start, Graham. Well, we've talked about farm bill engagement and making the farm bill cool and a priority because it is. We need to have a good balance of supply chain workers, of consumers, and farmers being able to connect and make these conversations really go. We need to reconnect inner city, and we need to reconnect that with indigenous and tribal, and we need to connect that with the country. So you have Kind of three trifectas there that have to come to the table and be advocating for something that impacts all of us. That's the first thing. Now the other thing is simply we need to start, you know, as we go to wherever we go to get our food, we need to be taking a look at what we're putting in our bodies because we do owe it to ourselves to ask ourselves the question is what I'm putting in my body, is this enabling me to get the maximum out of the short blip of life, you know, that I've I've been given. When we make choices that support more ethical forms of business in farming and ranching with the consumer purchase of a product in which they have now know who that farmer is through various transparency mechanisms, this know your farmer piece, you start to shift things drastically. And also, furthermore, we just need more advocates from all kinds of parts in all of those sectors I mentioned to start talking about this. We'll find each other if you're out there writing editorials or if you're out there, you know, making calls or you're popping onto some of these meetings with organizations who are leading these conversations. We are looking for a more unified front on an issue that hasn't always been front and center. But those are the two things. This beast of a farm bill for policy and adding some of these reform components and just being more clear and intentful as we talk to our leadership and furthermore, starting to honor what we put in our body and knowing that farmer where it comes from as much as possible. Some people in closing on this point will say it's expensive, but I would challenge you to look at just how to prepare how to purchase some of these small grains and start taking some steps away out of a diet that could include things like pop and chips or other things that are processed that are just not good for you. Know your farmer, the protein you put in your body should be ethically produced. It's very important you do that. And there can be some life changes, which I think will benefit the majority of people that undertake that quest, both mentally and physically. This is definitely a call to action, but we have to take some of this control you know, and responsibility onto our individual selves. And when we all get better at that, then you start to see the market demand move. And there is even more reason for us to advocate for on-farm processing infrastructure and some of these other pieces that get the product from the farm to our friends in New York City, Los Angeles, Miami, Chicago, or anywhere else in the country.
1: Yes. Thank you, Graham. I will just add a few little pieces that um, this has been a very I'd like the audience to know that you can start from a very ignorant space of the farm bill and learn a lot quickly. And so, you know, giving yourself grace to learn and take a take a stab at learning these complex models. It's been really wonderful to just kind of let myself be a student in this and And connect it to the other areas that I come from learning on more of a global social justice issues and health frame. That gave me the context of commodification and in the context of colonization. And so now weaving it into how that relates to our system here in the us is really powerful. So I would say, learn, keep your curiosity. There is a story to tell here. There is historical context here. And we are living in a time of of true transformation. And I would just say, as we talk about regenerative ag and, and, you know, there is some of, of really trying to splice the definition, I would urge the audience to really look in terms of the term regeneration. It is really inspiring and a hopeful process and curiosity to learn about regeneration in all its forms beyond agriculture and um, know that there is a place for everyone in, in this story of regeneration. And you may be really surprised <laughs> where you end up being a part of, a part of this story in this greater problem-solving place we are in, in history.
0: Yeah, it's a unique time for sure
2: yeah for those folks that want some uh, reading material or want to be following along you know this conversation or or just gathering more background information or doing research, I do have a couple tips. I would say that. We are working on a program called Regenerating America with Kiss the Ground. Uh, more to come on that. But if you if you follow Kiss the Ground, they have been doing these soil health advocacy classes. Um, Laura uh, was a participant in the soil health advocacy class. Um, it helped inspire and activate her at multiple levels in the in the work that she does. And I've been inspired by it as well. And that's an easy way. It's a seven week course to get involved and be able to learn more about how this stuff is connected. Regenerating America effort will be looking at advocating for good farm bill policies. The NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, they're going to be coming out um, with a piece shortly that highlights information pertaining to the farm bill Um, and their Farm Bill suggestions based on a whole wide array of surveys they did with farmers all across the country. Um, I was part of that. I've got just a little sneak peek of that. um, And there's going to be a launching coming out on that. But I think it's hitting some of these pieces really well that we're talking about. Um, So stay tuned on that. And then there's also a book that I've been um, reading lately called The Farm Bill, A Citizen's Guide. Um, that book is written by Daniel Imhoff, and so if you eat, pay taxes, or care about the nation's food supply, this book is for you. It's a it's a really good breakdown of this big, huge farm bill package, um, and it's a great resource. and And I'll I'll turn the pages uh, pages to it every now and then when I'm looking to try to dig further into some more information or how something works.
1: And Andy, I would just say the other piece is just it's such an important moment in time to be bridge builders. You know, however, you can do that in your local community, or if you get a global network, that is so powerful as we solve these complex problems and holding space for indigenous wisdom and also innovation and technology. We can hold multiple spaces and have just a little bit leveled up conversations and what we see on the news, you know, this kind of binary narrative. And and if I do believe that. This is going to be that ability that's going to give us the energy to really catalyze uh, this change to a more regenerative world.
0: For folks that want to keep tabs on what you guys are doing, is there a social media handle that they can check out or a website or anything like that?
2: I would say that in Nebraska, but we hit on these Farm Bill things, some really fun pages to uh, watch would be Nebraska Communities United. They hit on a bunch of the structural issues, both federally and state level, but we're in the middle of this whole deal. And so a lot of what happens in Nebraska um, resonates across the country from inside out. I would advocate following Regenerate Nebraska. They have both Facebook and Instagram, and I would advocate for GC Resolve. We also put a lot of these kind of conversations and issues on the forefront of our social media, which includes Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And like I said, I would, I'd start uh, paying attention to Kiss the Ground. They definitely have a national reach and um, they are going to be diving more into these conversations moving forward. Very relevant organization for people to tune into. And I, I think they relate well, you know, outside of farm country also.
0: Well, Graham and Laura, this has been fantastic. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you.